Thank you for downloading the African History and Politics Seminar, presented by the University of Oxford's African Studies Center and the History Faculty. I'm really excited to be here at Oxford. Uh, for those of you who don't fully know my background, the sports people, uh, my background is actually in African history. My PhD in Queens was in African history. I was supervised by Alan Jeeves and uh, Jonathan Crush, Bob Shenton, uh, both of whom, uh, the latter two, have done a lot of work on uh, uh, critique of development studies generally. So it's been nice uh, as I've started to teach a course in my master's program on sport and international development to kind of reconnect with, with Bob and Jonathan's work that I had left aside because I was uh, doing some other topics. Uh, I was at Queen's at a very exciting time in the early 1990s. Not only were those guys there, Bruce Berman, who's still there, Colin Lees was there, so it was a very exciting time to be doing um, African studies, and we had a huge uh, African studies seminar at that time. I, uh, I made it to Yale, one of the competitors, but I, uh, I didn't make it to Oxford. I've, I've been many times in Shula Marx's seminar in London, but uh, this is my first time to do this. And we found out today that Michelle and I have uh, at least a small connection when I found out she was uh, affiliated with Lincoln College. Uh, when I was at South Carolina, one of the nice things we had was a uh, Oxford professor came in every year um, who was funded by the university. And uh, while I was there, VHH Green was brought in. And I remember one of my uh, professors at South Carolina saying, I thought he was dead. Um, and then uh, he invited me to Lincoln College uh, the following year uh, for a visit. Uh, so that was, uh, that, was, uh, that was fun for me. So I want to thank uh, the university, Lincoln College, uh, the, the uh, history faculty, uh, British Society for Sports History, who have, uh, I think, combined, uh, helped enable me uh, to be here uh, today. I flew in from D.C. yesterday, and I fly home tomorrow. So it's a... Uh, in and out visit. Um, little did I think uh, when I was growing up in African history that my uh, first seminar I would present at Oxford would be on women's sport in Africa. Um, first of all, uh, when I was coming through, uh, I had uh, one of my, uh, who I say is otherwise very wise supervisors, tell me not to do sport for my PhD thesis. Uh, he said, uh, go and do something else, and then when you get tenure, you can research on sport because nobody will, will, will bother you. So I did a PhD thesis, uh, which was a history of Alexandria Township uh, outside of Johannesburg from 1912 to 1948. Um, but I published two papers on the side on sport because another of my supervisors said, uh, you should do sport as well so you have uh, several strings to your bow. And that's how I ended up in New Zealand teaching sport history. So I kind of went the direction of sport for a while, um, but wrote uh, a good chunk of my work on, on Africa, uh, as well as having done a fair bit of work on uh, sport in Australia and New Zealand, since that's where I spent uh, the bulk of my career up until the last few years. So what I want to do today is uh, not so much report on research I've done, because I haven't done as much as I should have done on women and sport in Africa. And so there'll be some self-deprecation in the talk um, and some uh, self-criticism, as well as try to point uh, to 
the way forward. And I think we've, uh, we've seen today, uh, for those of you who've been in the seminar, some very exciting new work uh, that's taking place. And uh, occasionally, uh, a few of us uh, oldies um, like to uh, think we can continue to contribute. John, called, what did you call yourself? The president of the, uh, Thanks, the, the Old Fellows Club. Um, I'll volunteer to be your vice president, shall we say. Um, I think it's safe to say that Africa has certainly arrived on the global sporting map, particularly through successes in athletics and soccer achieved by athletes from all over the continent over the past 30 to 40 years. If we include the achievements of white South African athletes in rugby, golf, tennis, swimming, and athletics, amongst other sports, the record for the continent is even more impressive. Yet prior to the last decade, you could count on one hand the leading scholars of sport in South Africa, and you could count on your other hand the number of quality papers published on sport in the rest of Africa. This is not to say that historians have not been aware of the role of sport in African societies. John Eilif recounted the significance of football clubs in the emergence of nationalist political movements in colonial Tanganyika in his work in the late 1970s and 1980s. Phyllis Martin, in her path-breaking book on leisure and culture in colonial Brazzaville, gives sport a more central presence. In South Africa, historians such as Jeff Perez and Tim Cousins wrote about football, though their primary interests lay in other areas. Albert Frundling, Andre Udendahl, and Rob Morell, who are each accomplished in a range of historical research areas, have published key works on the history of sport in South Africa. However, even sports fanatical historians such as Phil Bonner and Bruce Murray <coughs> have largely avoided sport as they developed their careers. Murray has seen the light, and it took many years to get him there. Uh, even while he was on the first uh, tour that South Africa did to India after they were readmitted to world cricket uh, and has begun working on cricket history in South Africa for much of the past decade, some of it in collaboration with Christopher Merritt, who's done some sensational uh, local studies. In fact, the bulk of leading historians of Africa barely mentioned sport before the 2000s, however. A handful of historians from South Africa and beyond began to transform our understanding of sport in Africa, particularly after 1990. Before that time, most historical research focused on rationales for or against sporting boycotts uh, with South Africa. This work was not unimportant, but um, was, was focused on political objectives. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And... Uh, it also suffered from uh, lack of resources in other parts of the continent, so there was not much done uh, in Africa itself. Um, and as I suggested before, um, there were hierarchies of what con constituted a significant historical topic that existed in, in departments of history. And at about the same time, uh, physical education departments were becoming more and more scientized. So, Historians of sport were kind of caught in the middle, particularly um, historians of sport in Africa. Uh, by the 1990s, though, a handful of historians such as Udendahl, Frundling, Morell, Chris Merritt were beginning to produce quality works on the history of sport from within South Africa, while Doug Booth, uh, hopefully myself, and later Peter Alleghi began the assault from without. These works situated sport within broader social, cultural, political, and economic contexts. Class and race were central elements to analysis, 
and gender has been present in several works, particularly focused on analyses of sport and masculinities. In other areas of Africa, key works dealing with African sporting histories also began to appear during the 1990s, most notably, um, although uh, not purely historical, um, was Bale and Sang's uh, book Kenyan Running, which I think gave us a lovely multi, multi-dimensional pro- approach to uh, explaining uh, a historical phenomenon which also had spatial and other uh, implications. Since 2000, and particularly since the FIFA World Cup was awarded to South Africa for 2010, there has emerged what I would call the World Cup football history bonanza, as numerous works emerged to capitalize on the World Cup being in Africa for the first time. I plead guilty to this, as a new edition of my 1997 History of Sport in South Africa was published three months before the World Cup, with a new catchy South African title, Long Run to Freedom, uh, um, actually an, an intended pun on Nelson Mandela's uh, Long Walk to Freedom, Sport Cultures and Identities in South Africa. Unfortunately, it hasn't done much to improve the sales. Um, Peter Legge produced no fewer than three books on soccer in Africa as part of this bonanza. Both Peter and I, however, have spent the bulk of our careers writing about sport in Africa, and more particularly, South Africa. Many other journalists, academics, and others almost literally fell out of the sky like the Coke bottle in The Gods Must Be Crazy, putting African football and sport on the world map, sometimes to the dismay of many who had toiled in the field for years, particularly when we're not sighted. Um, This attention has not been all bad, but has served to entrench our thinking about sport and sport history in Africa as largely one of association football with a few runners sprinkled in from time to time. The one caveat being the case of white South Africans in sport, where there is a more diverse representation. (coughs) What all of this has meant for women in sport in Africa remains to be seen, and I would argue uh, potentially having the World Cup in Africa, as we've heard in a couple of the papers today, may not necessarily be a good thing long-term for women's football. What is clear is that the percentage of coverage of women in histories and contemporary analysis of sport in Africa is actually less than it was before the World Cup circus came to town as a percentage of of the literature. Gender has for many years been a subject of keen debate among historians. Much of the 1980s work that put women into the historical analysis was done by Western women and some men, and I include white South African women here in this uh, same context from various feminist theoretical backgrounds. These works began to present a rich and complex history of women during the colonial and post-colonial eras, some of which were impressive in their detailed local analyses. I'm thinking here of works such as Louise White's on women prostitutes in colonial Nairobi, Belinda Batsoli's study of the women of Foking, and the collection that Kathleen Sheldon put together entitled Courtyards, Markets, and City Streets, Women in Urban Africa. Others such, such as Deborah Gateskill and Shula Marx examined specific groups of women. All of these were significant and path-breaking in their analysis, yet virtually none of these works ever mentions sport. These interventions pushed male historians to take women more seriously in their analyses, even if initially most of us relegated women to endnote one or two, while the bulk of discussion returned to men. In sports history, the case was no different, and I also plead guilty to helping to perpetuate this problem as well. 
My two major works on the history of South African sport barely mention women at all. Granted, I did state that the purpose of one was to focus on rugby and the other cricket, soccer, and rugby in the formation of wider identities. But the question of selectivity remains. Why only men's sports? Were women's sports different? If so, how and why? In fact, I have collected some information on netball, and my findings so far suggest that netball was as central to a female political and racial identity for white women, particularly Afrikaner women, as rugby was for men. My recent overview of sports history on Africa in the Routledge Companion to Sports History demonstrates, though, that the literature on women and sport in Africa remains very limited, including the literature on white uh, women in sport in South Africa, which does have a long uh, and rich history. White women of Southern Africa have had a long history of engagement with sport and have competed in a number of sports, particularly netball, field hockey, swimming, athletics, tennis, and golf at high levels and for a long period of time. As international competitions became more common for women from about 1960 onward, uh, however, Southern African women involved in the South African sports system, and this largely included uh, colonial Rhodesia and um, Southwest Africa, now Zimbabwe and Namibia, were excluded from international competitions due to apartheid in sports. Since the end of apartheid, several South African white female athletes have had tremendous international success, and you can think of a few, Penny Haynes in swimming, for example, Irene Van Dyke in netball, though Van Dyke moved to New Zealand and subsequently played for, uh, for New Zealand against South Africa. What roles did race and class play in sport choices and in sports operations for white women. It is clear that the racial boundaries in sport among women were little different than in men's sport, but we know very little about how the color bar operated and was sustained in women's sport. I've done some oral history work in this area, and the further away we get from the apartheid era, I'm finding it's more difficult to obtain solid information about motivations. Organization information is at least as hard to come by as it is in men's sport. Think of the box in somebody's uh, garage that has the minute books from the history of the entire organization, uh, which I've uh, had happen to me on several occasions. Um, and uh, so you, it is very difficult and you have to find the right people who know where the records are in order uh, to get at them. And it is hard to develop or recreate histories of white women's sport in South Africa unless one is trained to do critical analytical history and has a long period of time to establish at least some insider credentials, something we talked about in a couple of the sessions uh, earlier today. Uh, once uh, unity was achieved in sport, the white takeover of, of, of sporting structures in South Africa guised as unity uh, initially, um, Few administrators have been keen to come clean about apartheid-era sport and have instead focused on the tremendous challenges that sportswomen face in post-apartheid South Africa, which is no less gender-biased than previous eras or than other societies in Africa. And the common response I get is, you know, in those days things were different, we are moving forward now, um, basically I don't want to talk about that. Um, and, and that's the that's the attitude that you get, or you know, I understand that there were problems, but everything's okay now because we're all on the same side. That kind of response. Hmm. Um, 
So while there's much more of a record uh, of the participation of white women in sport in Africa, there are still many unanswered questions that researchers need to address and many topics, I think, uh, worthy of exploring. Um, I think, Dean, you take uh, the notion of how women were represented generally, and so women's relationship to sport is also important, as well as women's relationship in sport and their participation in sport. So, uh, I, I confess that I am uh, South African-centric um, in most of my uh, uh, analysis and discussion because that's my background. I'm less confident speaking about women's sports and sporting experiences in other regions of sub-Saharan Africa. <coughs> However, I think that some of the patterns that have been prevalent, particularly for black women in South Africa, can be seen in other areas. While many male athletes have succeeded in becoming household names, I think of soccer greats like Eto'o, Drogba, uh, runners like Kena, Gebra Selassie, etc., the names of African female athletes, recent scandals excluded, are much well known to a wider audience, particularly one that doesn't follow, say, the sport of athletics on a regular basis. And while it is true that fewer women and girls are active in sports than men and boys, African sport for both men and women is integrated into the global elite sports system through international federations, national governing bodies, and regional and global competitions. Yet vast differences remain between men and women in sports <laughs> participation numbers across the continent. How and why this is the case and the barriers uh, we must address in democratizing sport for all is important. In particular, critical analyses of embodied gender relations should be a starting point. And uh, it, it still amazes me when I go to conferences and listen to papers on sport, how many times the body is either just taken as a given or not talked about at all when the body is absolutely central to sport and representation in and through sport. In my view, we need to understand more fully the historical development of embodied practices in Africa, particularly in urban Africa where Western culture began to influence social and cultural mores by the early 20th century. As I know it better than others, here I'll continue to provide examples from South Africa, though I think the general approach is valid for other regions. Domination, writes Hilde Hendrickson, is always grounded in face-to-face -face relations in which the visual language of the body assumes an especially critical dimension. The works of Irving Goffman, Pierre Bourdieu, and Michel Foucault and their discussions of embodied practices and embodied signs as means of body management provide valuable insights into this language. Their contributions are especially pertinent in understanding non-coercive relationships typical of the segregation and apartheid eras, and I would argue are particularly relevant for gender relations today. Goffman conceptualizes the body as a vehicle for social interaction, where identity is the outcome of a process of negotiation between demeanor, public presentation, and deference, how others respond to that presentation or absence thereof. In Goffman's words, demeanor, behavior typically conveyed through deportment, dress, and bearing, serves to express to those in their immediate presence that they are people of certain desirable or undesirable qualities. The well or properly demeaned individual displays such attributes as discretion and sincerity, modesty and claims regarding self, sportsmanship, command of speech and physical movements, self-control over emotions, appetites, and desires, poise under pressure, 
Rightly or wrongly, others tend to use such qualities diagnostically as evidence of what the actor is generally like at other times and as a performer of other activities. And I think we think about the papers today about reactions to women participating in sport, particularly by men, uh, um, in some of the research that we've seen. This is particularly relevant. Correct demeanor was a critical aspect of body management and identity among the black middle classes and intelligentsia in the Cape Colony by the late 19th century. Educated on Christian mission stations in the Eastern Cape, they subscribed to cultural assimilation and the British civilizing mission that placed heavy emphasis on the correct presentation of the body. Indeed, sportsmanship, which Goffman explicitly refers to as a system of bodily presence and deportment, symbolized British ethics and morality and defined civilized behavior. Nowhere was this more true than in the game of cricket, which according to British tradition could only be mastered by civilized gentlemen. Members of the African middle classes adopted cricket as a means of embodying respectability and status, or in Goffmanian terms, as a tool to demonstrate that they could manage their bodies and stage appropriate performances. By enthusiastically playing the most gentlemanly and Victorian of games, writes Andre Udendahl, Africans showed that they could assimilate European culture and behave like gentlemen, and by extension, to show their fitness to be accepted as full citizens in Cape society. Mission-educated black men identified the cricket club as a form of finishing school for the body, a place to learn correct posture, dress, deportment, and speech, and how to position one's body in both space, respect of the private space of social betters, and time, adopt a measured, self-assured tempo. Brian Willen argues that it was as Joint Secretary of the Eccentrics Cricket Club in Kimberley that Saul Pleike, a founder of the South African Native National Congress, later the ANC, embodied middle-class qualities and values. <coughs> Similarly, the following comments by John Tengu of Jabavu, leading figure in African political and social life and editor of the first African political newspaper, Imvo Zabanzundu, the native opinion, and chairman of cricket and long tennis clubs in King's, King Williamstown, capture well the determination of the black middle classes to monitor their bodies and, quote, internalize a finely demarcated set of rules about what constitutes appropriate behavior in various situations, end quote. When an ex inexperienced King Williamstown African cricket team defeated the champion local white side in 1885, Jababu declared, it is enough to say that the contest shows that the native is a rough diamond that needs to be polished to exhibit the same qualities that are to be found in the civilized being, and that he is not to be dismissed as a mere creature, as it has been the habit of the pioneers to do so here too. Building on the premise that sport requires management of the body, and that such management is central to the acquisition of status and distinction, Bourdieu shows how different classes and class factions use their sporting bodies to display and distinguish themselves and thus maintain status. In the 19th century, the African middle classes trained their bodies to convey prestige and power and to distinguish themselves from those they considered socially inferior. Jabavu endorsed legislation introduced by the Cape Parliament in 1891 to ban, quote, obscene tribal amusements heathen boys submitting to the barbarous rite of traditional initiation dances and appearing in public places, Jabavu warned, 
will set a bad example to young men endeavoring to cultivate good morals. In the 20th century, the black urban middle classes continued, and I'm not going to, I'm using that as a, a midway point, not saying that they're actually middle class. Some have said petty bourgeoisie um, to dif differentiate from um, various terms. So I'm, I'm not trying to say that I'm talking about a middle class in, in the terms that we might use in, in the U.S. or maybe here. Um, continued to emulate, quote, civilized European culture as a way to distinguish themselves from the working classes and portray themselves as civilized and worthy of the political and material opportunities that they believed accompanied the cultural appellation civilized. They preserved British manners and airs and played tennis and cricket at clubs with classical English names such as daffodils, morning stars, primroses, winter roses, eccentrics, and Duke of Wellington. Ordinary township dwellers referred to them as the excuse me please class. Excuse me please. By contrast, working class Africans and coloreds played soccer and rugby respectively to demonstrate a robust physical and aggressive masculinity consistent with their rougher, less refined, more hedonistic habitus. Tough masculinity was a critical aspect of colored rugby in the Western Cape. One former player recounts stopping an opposing player from demolishing his team. I said to our captain, um, I'm not going to do it in the accent, but it's, it's, it's classic. You must make a change, man. We're going to lose. So he asked me, what can we do? So I say, the only thing you can do is change me from my position. I was a loose forward, and I went to go and play in his position on the wing. The first time, he comes past. The second time, he's gone off the field. So there are no more tries coming from their side. It shows the tactics you must use. You must use your brains. Right? So he, they couldn't stop the guy. So a clever strategy, move him out there and knock him out and injure him so he can't play anymore. And that was acceptable uh, behavior. Um, in colored rugby, brains translated into physical intimidation. Uh, while soccer is a less combative sport than rugby, African soccer teams um, called themselves quite different names, wild savages, wild zebras, cannons, lions, vultures, to evoke the images of viciousness, fury, and savagery. The language adopted by African sportsmen was not a simple form of cultural mimicry, nor was it solely a means by which officials and players communicated technical information about the rules <coughs> of the game or organization of forthcoming matches. Proper accent, vocabulary, and syntax were as much prerequisites for social acceptance and status as bodily deportment. And even in the Western Cape, in the rugby <coughs> clubs, all of the meetings of uh, all of the meetings were conducted in English, even though nearly all of the players spoke Afrikaans as first language. So language was also important uh, in this context. Um, not surprisingly, then, aspirants to the black establishment sought office in leading sports clubs where they could perform and display their language as well as their corporeal skills. Moreover, language, an, ex uh, an essential component of Foucault's concept of discourse, is critical in the production, monitoring, and controlling of bodies. According to Foucault, discourses impose society on malleable bodies linking the practices of day-to-day -day life with the organization of power at the societal level. All of these examples relate to the African male sporting body. What of women and physicality? 
In the West, with very few non-mechanized tasks remaining that cannot be performed by anyone, sports has been the last bastion of masculine power. Mariah Burton Nelson, a great athlete herself, coined it well in the title of her incisive book on the subject of sport in the United States, entitled The Stronger Women Get, The More Men Love Football, meaning American Gridiron Football. Um, a similar process may be emerging in Africa, which in part explains both the resistance by men of women entering sports in larger numbers and empowerment of women as a result of their participation. Thus, the theoretical discussions of race and class bodies should be at least as useful in examining gendered sporting bodies in the African context. Jennifer Hargreaves has pointed to the notion present in wider literature on women in South Africa that the segregation and apartheid systems attacked the dignity and power of black men, but left them largely in control of black women. And I would add this included physical domination, which still exists today. Cassie alluded to this in her paper. Um, the practice of so-called corrective rapes is still all too common in a country that actually has a constitution that bans such hate crimes. And one well-publicized case involved the brutal murder of South African national football team member Yudi Simulani in 2009. Eight. Yeah, 2008. Yeah. If strong sportswomen face rape and murder as a potential reward, is it, clear that it is clear that much education and developmental work needs to be done on the ground as well as uh, academic and historical work. An additional long-term structural factor in South Africa was the migrant labor system uh, that operated, meaning that more men than women moved to cities and women's domestic roles were preserved in the rural areas. These interconnected factors made sports participation difficult for most black women and is still a problem. There's still significant differences between rural and urban areas. Gosselin, in a 2006 discussion of barriers and prospects for women in sport in South Africa, outlined several structural factors that remain. The African Renaissance policy and the Ubuntu philosophy are critical documents that guide the South African social change strategy and process. In South Africa, with the majority of its population living in rural areas, traditional law and customs still form the foundation of day-to-day -day governing strategies. According to customs of different ethnic groups, women are subordinate to men and cannot hold leadership positions outside the immediate household. So although South Africa's modern westernized constitution guarantees equal rights to men and women, in reality a discrepancy exists between traditional laws and national laws. Women in rural areas involved in sport are therefore severely disadvantaged and marginalized in terms of leadership positions. Um, and the rural-urban divide is an additional topic that needs to be addressed more fully. Traditional laws and customs also impact on the priority of access and equity, as stated in the National Sport and Recreation Policy. Girls in rural areas simply do not have time or opportunity to participate in sport due to the demands of their household chores. And I would also, I would also add that many of the development projects that appeared in and around the World Cup uh, actually exacerbated this divide as so many of them were in the high-profile areas of Johannesburg, Cape Town, and Durban, uh, and many of the smaller areas and rural areas were uh, even further disadvantaged, and so that divide has actually increased as a result of the World Cup. Um, harder to get your cameras in and out quickly uh, when you go uh, to remote areas. Um, 
Some women aspiring for leadership positions in sport are clearly caught in this juxtaposition between African values and Western values. Sport participation by South African population group clearly indicates this tendency. Of the top 10 sports, only soccer, netball, and track and field show um, a relatively representative racial mix. In tennis, aerobics, swimming, golf, cycling, cricket, and rugby, participation represented, representation remains heavily skewed towards the white population. In South Africa and in other parts of Africa, access to space and control of designating and scheduling sports space is a crucial factor in girls and women being able to participate in sports or not. Martha Saavedra, for example, has examined the situation for women in sport comparatively based on her studies in Senegal, Nigeria, and South Africa, finding that the boundaries of who play and who can't is always more about power than it is about issues of indigenous culture. In Senegal, for example, women's basketball is among the most popular sports third only to men's soccer and men's African wrestling. Um, and the Senegalese whom Saavedra talked to claim this is partially because basketball is viewed as a more graceful feminine sport than the brute game of soccer. Yet when we dig a little deeper, it is the lack of access to footballing spaces that is a key issue for, for girls and women who are thus maneuvered towards basketball. And then the, cont the, context the contextualization of this is interesting because in basketball, uh, in the basketball in the United States is seen to be quite physical, particularly for girls and women who play the sport, um, where it's the uh, quite different view in Senegal. Saavedra points out that men are usually well embedded in the power structures and national federations that oversee the game, that women in many African communities have less leisure time than men, that there are many other social issues that may, be, that may necessarily be priorities for African women activists more than sports equity, such as violence against women, HIV AIDS, limited access to education, and malnutrition. Other obstacles are more subtle. Saavedra points out, for example, that female beauty norms in many parts of Africa don't mesh with athleticism required of football players. Unlike discussions in the West, a consideration of muscles, femininity, and sexuality in Senegal is not yet an issue about suspected lesbianism, but about fertility and socioeconomic status. Competing femininities reflect this. The rural, muscled, toiling agrarian woman versus the more privileged urban woman who does not need to labor physically. In the urban environment where sport is more common, there exist two idealized femininities that are decidedly non-muscular, um, uh, she points out. The disquette, young, slim, western-oriented, and the drianc, large, soft, round, and economically established. Despite these examples, um, of violence against sports women or the differences between rural and urban female bodies, the focus of much sport development work in Africa has been on the empowerment of girls and women. Some ideas of empowerment have come with, from within and others have infused Western-sponsored uh, Western projects targeting uh, girls and women. In Eritrea, for example, football became popular among women during their liberation struggle. Here it seems that female athletes translated their passion for sports into a passion for protecting their country. Several of the most inspirational Eritrean commanders were women who had participated in sports. 
This suggests that the translation of skills from sports to political and military realms has been similar for men and women in Africa, though the periodization is different. If you think back to uh, um, many of the uh, leaders of the African National Congress, Mandela himself was a keen sportsman uh, in boxing, uh, for example. Many others uh, first honed their political and administrative skills uh, in football. Empowerment is the key theme that emerges in an analysis of sport development projects aimed at women. The ACWAS project in Rwanda places empowerment of women as players, coaches, and administrators at the core of its work, while an associated aim is to raise participation rates in sport from the current estimate of 3% among women. Secondary aims include family planning, <coughs> HIV AIDS, education, and nutrition edu um, education. And we've heard uh, several examples of other projects uh, during the day today. Much of what we've learned about women in sport in Africa begins with the emergence of competition in sports formally defined as male, particularly soccer and basketball, from about 1990 onward. It is therefore possible to examine the women who have participated and the factors that have led them into sports, which some of the presenters here today uh, have already done. Um, I, I know Cassie's work, for example, having played and participated and done uh, participant, participant observation work um, is, is, uh, one, is the kind of work that we need a lot more of. We know from research on women in sport in other continents that most women who play soccer, rugby, basketball, etc., had mothers or aunts who played netball or hockey or some other more accepted sport for women in the past or came from families with a strong history of sport participation by males. As societal boundaries began to shift in the West during the 1960s and 1970s, women's sport participation levels increased dramatically. Yet in the global south, women's acceptance as sports participants has come at a slower pace and with levels of resistance and denigration remaining powerful. Sasha Sutherland, for example, who's uh, working with me in, um, uh, in Barbados, yes, I, I do get to spend some of my year there, especially January, um, is exploring the tremendous resistance that women footballers face in the Caribbean, particularly in Trinidad and Barbados, um, Trinidad with a, a quite strong recent history of football um, among men, um, Barbados a much less uh, strong history, yet the attitudes to women playing uh, football are uh, remarkably consistent between the two. It appears from emerging research that women's movement into formerly male-only sports is in ever-increasing ever numbers has not followed the transgressive model necessarily of the USA which was particularly evident in rugby, but rather an inclusive um, me, we, too, liberal feminist model of in in inclusion. And this is a question where we could, we could actually discuss the notion of do development projects actually entrench these well-established uh, models. Yet we still see a massive disparity in sport development programs that target girls as well as much lower level participation by girls in supposedly gender-neutral or gender-inclusive programs. The issues of sexuality and homophobia are obviously tremendous obstacles to the progress of women's sport in Africa, as development programs may be resisted by parents or community members, uh, depending on the sport or the activity. In a project my students and I worked on in Hanspai in the Western Cape, the girls play netball, but not football, as netball is accepted for girls by the community, while football is not. And I might add that the boys have a FIFA standard synthetic 
high-tech new age pitch provided by the Premier League and the girls have a couple of netball courts on the side that are not international standard netball courts. Um, and this echoes the findings that Saavedra has in Senegal about the issues of, of, of fights over space and place and where and who gets to play. For me, the fundamental questions are, if women only began to play sport in significant numbers in the 1980s and 90s, what were women doing for leisure and recreation before that time? At what point and in what sports did women begin to participate? And how, can, how and when can we date this? And uh, that still uh, remains to be um, completed, I think, uh, for a number of sports across many contexts across Africa. So uh, I, I finish with a few key questions um, and, and hope that we can maybe talk about this in discussion or that it might inform uh, practice uh, for uh, future research. The key questions uh, that I think um, uh, we, should, uh, we should start with are how might we try to explain the relative success or otherwise of women's sport in different places? How do national politics influence the development of women's sports? How can we understand the development of women's sport in Africa in relation to other economic and social trends? What is the relationship between men's and women's sports? And indeed, the organization and administration of that is as, as, as crucial, I think, and the politics of that as, as participation and participation rates. <coughs> to what extent are international relationships in women's sports shaped by inequality, power relations, and colonial or post-colonial relations in general? How is women's sport in Africa integrated into sport at the global level? And have global interventions into sport in Africa uh, served to create more opportunities for women or uh, lengthen the divide between men's sport and women's sport and between urban and rural women? And how do we uh, follow that and measure that and analyze that over time? Again, I think seminars such as this are good starting points. There have been many seminars on sport in Africa or sessions at conferences that have discussed sport in Africa, many on women in Africa, but only two that I'm aware of that have placed gender or women at the center of analysis. And at the former conference in Ohio, most of the papers on gender dealt with men in sport. So there's a vast field for research for historians, sociologists, policy study specialists, development study specialists, and others that is at its very early stages. And I commend Michelle and John and others who have helped put this uh, conference together or the seminar together, and I hope that there's some published outcomes from this and that there's uh, a lot um, of energy that's created as a result of this for the people who are here and that we can, uh, again, uh, I guess, proselytize this. Uh, I remember the days when I had to say... Um, I research on sport, but let me tell you it's important because um, I don't have to say that anymore, um, I, you know, but I, I remember when you used to have to say that. But very few events other than revolutions um, bring out hundreds of thousands of people uh, into the streets around Sydney Harbor or to big matches, as do sports events. Um, I remember that uh, it was only about 30 years ago that the first D. Phil thesis at Oxford was produced on sport. So we've come a long way in the last 30 years. Um, and uh, 
there's still, I think, a long way to go for sport generally, uh, for Africa, and probably even worse if we're going to do our um, triple marginalization uh, discussions here for women in sport in Africa. So thank you very much for uh, having me here and uh, be happy to entertain questions or have some discussion. Thank you.